So, Ben last week said that I wanted to keep it a secret, what we're going to talk about. And the reason why I wanted to keep it a secret is I was afraid nobody would show up. And so we're going to be talking from the book of Leviticus. And I hear that collective moan come from all of you. Oh no, not the book of Leviticus. And whenever I talk to a person, I say, we're going to talk about the book of Leviticus. This is the reaction I get. So I don't anticipate that your reaction was any different than that one. And a few weeks ago, Ben asked me if I would share a message. I said, fine. And so he texted me. And the text message he sent me was, what are you going to talk about? And I told him that I was interested in talking from the book of Leviticus. Well, almost instantaneously came back his message. The message was a single word. It wasn't great. It wasn't fantastic. It wasn't beautiful. In fact, it wasn't even in English. He translated, he sent me a word that was in ancient Greek. And this is the text I have on my phone. Okay, now you think this is liar, L-I-A-R. It's not ancient Greek. The I is E, so it's really liar. And the accent is on the second syllable, so he said liar. And so I looked it up in my Greek to English lexicon dictionary, and basically it's a code word. It's one word that represents an entire phrase. And the phrase is, I know you're teasing, what do you really want to talk about? Because I know it's not the book of Leviticus. Well, Leviticus unfortunately has a bad rap, and sometimes it's called the Bermuda Triangle of the Bible. This is Flight 19, took off from Florida in 1945. There were five Avenger bombers on it, flew into the Bermuda Triangle, never to be heard of again. And some reports say an estimated 9,000 people have gone into the Bermuda Triangle, never to be heard of again. Well, rumor has it that 9,000 baby Christians have gone into the book of Leviticus, never to be heard from again. That's only a rumor, though. But what is reality is that if next year you promise to go through the book of the Bible in one year or less, statistics show that you're going to stop reading in one place, and that's in the book of Leviticus. You'll get there, burn out, and this is what you're going to look like. But does the book of Leviticus desire or need to have that sort of reputation? And the answer is 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, all scripture. So I looked up the Greek word for all, and it means all. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why is that important to us? Keep reading. The second verse after that says, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every kind of good work. Well, I want to be a person of God. I want to be adequate. I want to do good works. So that means that I should know all of Scripture, and all of Scripture means the Old Testament as well. In 1999, Philip Yancey, who wrote several books, also wrote this one, and it has to do with the Bible that Jesus read. And does everybody know what the Bible Jesus read was? It was the Old Testament. And he goes on to introduce the book by saying the Old Testament, it's the book that Jesus read, he used, and he loved. And one of the conclusions he comes up with is the more we understand the Old Testament, the more we're going to understand Jesus. So that's a good reason to look at the book of Leviticus. Are there other good reasons? Well, if you're a Jewish growing up in Jesus's time, not that Jesus had to be taught the book, but the first book that Jesus would have been taught would have been the book of Leviticus. So even the Jews in Jesus's time, that was the first book. It's typically the last book that us as Christians go to. It's quoted some 40 times in the New Testament, 
And 20 of the 27 chapters in the book of Leviticus begins with the words, then the Lord said to Moses. And that phrase also occurs 14 times within the chapters. So this book, apart from every other book in the Old Testament, has more direct words from God than any other book. So it makes sense that we would want to read it. So my job is in this lecture is to pick out one verse from the Bible that more than any other verse sums up what I think Leviticus is all about. So turn your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 10. We're going to look at verse 2. This is the premier lesson. If you only want to commit one verse in the Bible to memory, this is what you should remember. So Leviticus chapter 10, verse 2, and it reads this. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And them here refers to Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avehu. Nadab and Avehu. And they died before the Lord. Now you might think that's a strange verse to remember. God's consuming and killing two people. And that's the lesson I want you to learn from this. So as we go through the lesson, you can judge the effectiveness of this talk on whether or not I convince you of that point, okay? So the whole book of Leviticus deals with two things. God is holy, man is sinful. Let's say that again. God is holy, man is sinful. And because of that, there's a barrier between God and man. And that if we want to get closer to God, we have to overcome that barrier. Now in this representation, the barrier is a wall, but it it could be a chasm, a cliff, something like that. And so since those two things are opposite, there's one natural question. How can a holy God live with a sinful people? Let's say that again. How can a holy God live with a sinful people? Now, the premise is, is that people are sinful, but the book of Leviticus never tries to prove that. Instead, it relies on the two books that come before Leviticus. And what are those two books? Genesis and Exodus. And what is Genesis and Exodus about? The story of people who are deceitful, dishonest, murderous. They turn from God and they commit all sorts of terrible crimes. Leviticus doesn't have to prove that point because it's already been proven by the two books that come before it. And so it makes that assumption. But there's still this difference between holiness and sinfulness. So God's holiness occurs more than 150 times in the Bible. More times is the word holy used in the book of Leviticus than anywhere else. Not only holiness, but holy, but holiness occurs 80 times. So if you add those up, that's even a bigger number, right? And so what does holiness mean? It means to be set apart. Set apart from what? Set apart from the culture. If the culture is telling you to do certain things that you know that God says you shouldn't do, God calls you to be set apart from that, to be different, okay? Because if you're not doing what God wants you to do, then you're being sinful. Sinful means to miss the mark, an archery term. So you miss the mark of God, what God wants you to be. If you're missing the mark, you become more unlike God. And you become more unlike him, both ethically and morally. And that puts a greater distance between you and God. And that greater distance separates you. The wall gets higher, it gets wider, it gets thicker, that chasm gets deeper. And then you're into even more of a problem. If you doubt me, talk to Adam and Eve. So the question comes is, how can we overcome this difference? 
Well, there's three ways you can overcome that difference, and I've listed them here. There's a payment, which is a general term that we use in day-to-day -day life. There's a reparation, which is a legal term. And then there's atonement, which is the religious term. And let's see how these terms vary. So payment is the average term that we would use. I go into a china shop, I see a vase, I want to buy it. I, I pick up the vase, I look at the underneath to see what the price is. I agree to the price, I go up to the cashier and I buy the vase, right? So that, no emotion is attached to that. I think it's worth this, you agree, I pay the price. How does reparation differ from that, the legal term? Well, reparation has in it that it's also defined as anything paid or done to make up for a wrongdoing or the act of making up for a wrongdoing. So I did something wrong, unlike a payment, now I have to fix it. Let's go back to our example. So in the china shop, I accidentally knock over a vase. That vase falls to the ground and is broken. I did a wrong, I broke the vase. Now I have to make a reparation, or I have to legally make it up to the owner. He tells me the price of the vase, I pay the price, I get out the pan, I sweep up, I tell this store owner how many times that I'm sorry for this, and I pay for the wrongdoing I did. But is there more to it than that? What you see here is a picture of a Ming vase. It's the most expensive vase ever bought in the entire world. It's 600 years old, it belongs to the Ming dynasty in China, and it was sold in auction for, are you ready, over $10 million. So I go into the China store and I break this face. I accidentally knock it over. I did a wrongdoing. Am I going to be able to make the payment for that? No. Am I going to be able to make a reparation for that? No matter how many times I tell the store owner, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, is that going to make up for it? How about if I feel really bad? Will that make up for it? No. It has to be more than that. And it has to be more than that for two reasons. One, I can never pay the price of that vase. And number two, the store owner wants me to understand what I've done. That vase was so valuable, even if I had $10 million, it could never be replaced. And that's what atonement is in a religious sense. Not only did you do something wrong that has to be paid for, but the owner of that vase, the owner of you, the person who tells you not to sin, wants you to understand how far that separated you from God. How many bricks you just added to that wall how thick that wall just got. And so it's more than a reparation, it's an atonement. And in the book of Leviticus, God tells us what the atonement is to look like. Now that word atonement should not be an unusual word to us. Last week, I think we sang about it. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life an atonement, there's that word again, an atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. So we're singing about it, at least we need to know what we're singing about. And atonement has three parts to it. And the three parts are substitution, imputation, and death. Now God says, death is the result of your sin. So whatever the atonement is, it has to be in a life form. And so something living has to be sacrificed. Then your guilt has to be imputed or transferred to that object, and then eventually the object has to be killed. A picture to you of what your sin has just done to you yourself. So, how did that work in Jesus' day? 
Well, there was one day of atonement, one day of payment, one day of restitution. It was the most holy day of the year to the Jews. There was one man, and when it began, it was the high priest Aaron, who was allowed to enter into the holy to holies. No, it wasn't that Aaron. It was a different Aaron. This is my son. And the person that was going to be the mediator went in. But unfortunately, the mediator wasn't perfect. And so before the mediator could go in before God to represent you, an offering had to be made for his sins. So the high priest would take off his priestly garments. He would put on the garments of a servant. In this case, just simple white linen. Then he would kill a bull, drain off the bull, and then sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. Now just imagine this. All the blood goes into a bowl. He takes a brush and starts flinging the blood all over the place. What do you think that's going to do to that nice white linen? Yeah, it's going to be pretty messy by the time he gets done doing that. And now that his sins have been atoned for, he can make an offering for the people's sins. They bring two goats to him. One goat is going to be sacrificed, killed. The blood from that goat is drained out, and then it's spread over the mercy seat, the furniture, and the altar itself. So again, he dips the blood, he starts flinging it. And this robe that was already white, stained with blood, what do you think is going to happen now? It gets more blood on it. And then the second goat, all the sins are symbolically transferred to it by the priest putting its hands on the goat's head. The goat is led out into the wilderness, and there there's some disagreement. Some people, the goat was pushed off a cliff. Others said it was just left out there to die. Either way, the goat ends up dying. You certainly don't want the goat that has all the sins on it walking back into camp, do you? So even the scapegoat was killed. In his book, Celebrating Jesus in the Biblical Feasts, Dr. Richard Booker talks more about it. He said that when the ceremony took place, the priest would have two stones, and in it one stone would represent the ghost that would be sacrificed, and one stone, the goat that would be led away. Now, it was a good omen if the goat that was to be led away was in the right hand, and the goat that was to be sacrificed was in the left. But for 40 years preceding the temple from being destroyed, the goat that was supposed to be in the good hand was in the left hand. So for 40 years in a row, it was a bad omen. Also, what the priest would do would take a scarlet thread and he would tie the thread around the goat's horn. And as the goat was led off into the wilderness and the goat eventually died, the other part of that thread, which was stuck to the temple door, would turn from a red to a white, indicating that the sins had died and you're now clean again. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And for 40 years preceding the destruction of the temple, that thread on the door never turned white. So you can imagine the priest, after this time of reflection, this 40 years of every time getting a bad omen. I think they knew something was coming. So I want to draw for you a word picture. Don't think of this in terms of you're the priest going into the temple. Think of this as you're the person outside of the temple watching this. Because after all, it's your sin that's being cleansed. You see the priest going in with this white garb, perfectly white, no stain on it at all. You know something is happening behind the temple doors. A rope is tied to the priest so they can drag him out if the priest is killed while he's in there. And why might they think the priest is killed? Nadab and Abahuv, 
both were consumed by the Lord. So it's not unheard of that the priest could have been killed. He steps outside the temple doors covered in blood. You don't know at that point whether or not your sins have been paid for or if the priest has been slaughtered. He stands up and there behind him trots out the goat and the goat goes off into the wilderness. And you realize through God's mercy, your sins for one year, for that last year have been forgiven. But you also know on your walk home that as soon as you commit the first sin of that year, it doesn't make a difference that that goat was sacrificed. You're still guilty. Well, how is atonement made today? Do we have a high priest? Well, Hebrews 4 says that we do. Who's our high priest? It's Jesus. And he goes into the temple, but he doesn't need a sacrifice because Jesus is perfect. So he can show up in the temple without a sacrifice being made for his sins. And the same atonement has to take place. The same three things that took place before. There has to be a substitution, an imputation, and a death. So who was the substitution? Not a goat, but it was Jesus as our substitution. Did Jesus take on the sins of all of us? Yes, he did. And what was the result of it? He died. So the same thing that took place with the goat takes place with Jesus. But it didn't really have to happen that way. Why didn't God just take Jesus to the backside of the moon, kill him, and say, it's finished, it's done, it's good? Wouldn't that have satisfied God? Because after all, he's out just looking for blood. But the death of Christ was a public display, not for God's sake, but for your sake. So you could see what the result of sin was. You can see the splattering of blood. You can see that death had to take place. You can see how serious God is about sin. And that's why it had to take place that way. And if you don't believe me that it had to take place, ask Jesus, Luke 22:42. It says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, but not your will, but not my will, but your will be done. He's saying, I don't want to do this. If there's any other possible way, God, isn't there one single other possible way of doing this than the way it is? My grandson, he takes a crayon, he goes over to the wall and he takes the crayon, he's putting crayon marks all over it. I see him doing it. I walk up to him and I say, son, do you think this is a good thing to do? And I'm asking him a question. Am I asking him the question for my benefit? Or am I asking him the question for his benefit? I know writing on my wall isn't a good thing to do but I want him to come to the realization that it's not good by asking him the question. In the same way, Jesus isn't asking the question that he doesn't know the answer. He knows what the answer is. He's asking it for your sake so that you can understand the results of what's going on. Read on chapter 24, why did he do it this way? So that the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. This goes back to Leviticus to what was taught in Leviticus. Remember Leviticus, the book that Jesus loved, that he read, that he understood, that Yancey talks about? That's why it had to be done. So is atonement any different today than it was in the past? Well, in the past, it had to be done every year, the sacrifice. But this atonement is different. It just had to be done once. John 19, verse 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The it is finished is a completed action in the past that never has to be done again. That's the verb tense in the Greek. Did it once, it's done, never again. So it's different 
and that it only had to be done once. Now, which brings us all the way back to where we started in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 2, and I hope you're still there. So let's not read verse 2 again, but let's see what led up to those brothers being killed. And it says in Leviticus 10, chapter 1, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of, sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord. That's what God told him to do. And it says, which he had not commanded them. So they're going before God, and not in the way that God told them, but in the way they wanted to do it. Now, exactly what happened is a measure of debate among different theologians. But what they don't debate in is that they didn't do it in the way that God prescribed. They wanted to come to God in their own terms. They didn't want to come to God in God's terms. And how often does that happen to us today when we approach God on our terms? Yeah, God, you're God, but I still am going to do this. Yes, God, but I don't want to do that, but it's okay because it's my way. So just as sin led to atonement, that is, you had to have something covering your atonement, atonement also leads to something else. If I take my five-year-old grandson and I spank him for something that he did that he shouldn't do, and he's crying, and I walk away, was I a very good grandparent? No. What has to happen after punishment? There has to be a restoration. I have to pick him up. I have to hug him. I have to tell him that grandpa still loves him. You know, he did something wrong, but grandpa still loves him. And so if we just left it at atonement, just left it at the crucifixion, without God telling us that he loves us, we're missing out on something. So the something that comes next is called redemption. And that's where God buys us back out of slavery, where he says, okay, the price has been paid. Now let's move on. Let me hug you. Let me love you. Let me get back. Let's get our life together again. And so redemption is what comes next. You see, because atonement deals with your relationship to sin, but redemption deals with your relationship to God. And what do you want? Do you want a relationship with sin or do you want a relationship with God? So it's always that sin leads to atonement, leads to redemption. And that's the order it should go in. Ben's not here at this sermon, so I can get away with saying this. If you listen to Ben's sermon, they're pretty rep- repetitious. Go ahead, pull anyone out from the old archives and see. He always talks about the same thing. First, somebody sins. You sin, I sin, they sin, we sin. We... It's always about sin. Then what does he talk about? Atonement. How are you going to make it right? But then he ends with redemption. How is it going to be if you change your ways from sin? Yeah, I know what you're going to say. Yeah, it changes. There are different people, different times, different places. But the story is the same from Ben always. The sin, the atonement, then the redemption. No matter how many times I hear that story, you know, never gets old. Never gets old. We have any Carmen fans out there? Hey, I love it. He's waving his hand. Yeah. Carmen was back in the 1980s, and he came out with an album, Summadad, in 1982. And the lead song from that album was a song straight out of Leviticus. And so I want to read the the lyrics of that song. And in the song, people see Carmen and they see Jesus being reflected 
from Carmen's continence, from his life, from his actions. And they come up to Carmen and they say, I want some of that. And if you're not an Italian from New York, I'll translate it for you. That means some of that. And they see this Jesus and they say, I want some of Jesus. And Carmen talks to him and he says, but you have to take God on God's terms. You can't make up what terms you're going to come to God and accept it as that. God has given terms that he wants to come by. And so you'll see in this, in this song how Carmen deals with it. He says, well, I got this friend named T.J. Clyde who sees the strength of God inside. And he says to me, hey, I want some of that. And I say, Clyde, it's easy as one, two, three. You just say the simple prayer with me. He says, not me, Bubba, but I still want some of that. Well, I was sharing with this salesman, Lyle. So he says to me with a million dollar smile, why that's interesting, you know, I want some of that. I said, Lyle, you're going to have to humble your pride and have to ask the Lord inside. And he says, no, ho, ho, but I still want some of that. Well, you can't find it in astrology. That horoscope you read is just a waste of time. You can't find it looking at stars, Jupiter, the moon, and Mars, because soon you'll find that all you have was space. Well, my best friend Ray has got this niece that sees within my eyes this peace. And yesterday she said, I want some of that. Well, I said, hey, sugar, now it's a breeze. Just talk to Jesus on your knees. And she said, I'm not the type, but I still want some of that. I want to come to God on my terms, not on his terms. Oh, they all want some of that. Brother, you can't find it in a bottle or even when you pop a pill or two. You can't find it smoking dope or weed because one fine day you're going to see that the dope you've been smoking, my friend, is you. Well, if you're depressed, then get used to it because without Jesus, you have blew it. He's the only one that can give you some of that. So why not try the Lord for goodness sake? You'll be as happy as a dog with a T-bone steak. And then you can say, hey, I got some of that. So what's the conclusion to all of this? The conclusion is simple. Say you're newly married. Maybe Roger and Hillary are sitting in the back there. Maybe you've been married for two years and you decide you want to have children, right? So one day you do the test and you find out you're pregnant, get an ultrasound, it's going to be a boy. Yeah, well, I've got two names I think you ought to think about. Two biblical names. Two names that have a good story in the Bible, a story worth remembering. You might consider either one of these names as one of the names for your boy. It's a good lesson worth remembering. Okay, let's go ahead and stand up for a word of prayer. Yeah, dear Heavenly Father, we just pray. I just pray that everybody here that's in church today wants some of that. And I pray that everybody knows there's a way to get some of that. And it's not through what we want, but it's by a way that you want. It's a way that you've shown us through the book of Leviticus, the sacrifice you made and the atonement and the redemption. We just pray that you'll help us understand that. And no matter how many times we hear that, Lord, I hope it never gets boring or you get tired of it. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So now we talked about how sin leads to atonement. You do something wrong, God has a way of correcting that. Then we talked about redemption, how once you have the atonement, that God invites you back into his holiness. 
But is there anything that comes after redemption? Does redemption lead anywhere? Well, it should, because once you've been redeemed, once you're brought it back into that fellowship with God, there's one place left where it should go, and that should lead you into worship. Because the book of Leviticus not only is a book about atonement and redemption, it's a book on how to really get some of that good worship. 